when I started sort of thinking about it, I anchored a strategic thinking around the ability, the essential ability of leaders to recognize emerging threats and opportunities, establish the right priorities to focus on, and mobilize their organizations to do something about it. And so this recognize, prioritize, mobilize cycle, you know, was, was kind of at the core of what I was thinking about. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. It's the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders, managing directors, CEOs and genuine subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader you can possibly be. It's my gift to you and it's completely free. So, I am incredibly excited to introduce you to today's guest, as he is one of the very best leadership authors and experts out there. In today's episode, you and I have the amazing opportunity to be in the company of Michael Watkins, the author of the long-standing, best-selling book, The First 90 Days. Michael Watkins has also just released his latest book that focuses on the topic of strategic thinking. It's something that most of us have probably been told we need to do more of or be better at on our journey towards more senior roles. And it strikes me that much of the time, those giving this feedback about someone's need to be more strategic and indeed those on the receiving end of that feedback, don't really know what it means or how to do it. Well, in his latest book, The Six Disciplines of Strategic Thinking, and this episode, Michael helps us all understand what strategic thinking really is and how to do it. In listening to this episode, You can expect to learn what it actually means to think strategically. A three-step framework for thinking more strategically. Exercises and practices that we can all complete to develop our ability to think strategically. How to communicate like a strategic thinker. And why we simply must get over any hang-ups we have about being political and inverted commas, and how to do that. So that is more than enough by way of an introduction. So let's dive right in. Here is my interview with best-selling author and leadership transitions expert, Michael Watkins. Michael, I'd love to start off by asking you about your first memorable leadership experience in the workplace or elsewhere, and how that has shaped you as an individual and as a leader. Sure. So this is going to be a bit of an unusual one, and it happened very early for me. It was sort of in my early 20s, and I was working for a, a power utility in the in Canada, and unfortunately, someone died as a result of an electrocution accident. And it was stunning for everyone. It was a a relatively small community of people in this particular town doing this. And the leadership just sort of handled it so brilliantly, Ben, right? I mean, it was 
everyone was in shock. You know, everyone was really down about it. There was a family that was, was, uh, was, uh, you know, obviously impacted by this and just that mixture of compassion, clarity, follow through, you know, it was just, it was, you know, it was amazing actually. And, and I think it had a really profound impact on me just about moments when leadership can really have a difference or make a difference, if that makes sense. Yeah. And did how the leadership team react in that situation was that sort of what you expected from prior experience of them? Was there a, a real degree of consistency there? So whilst it stood out, it was almost to be expected or, or was it something different? No, it was, it was a bit of a surprise and not because the leadership team, I think, was bad. It just they weren't highly present in the kind of day-to-day operations of, of the organization, right? It, it, was, uh, it ran on a pretty regular basis. And so the amount of visibility of the leadership wasn't all that great until that moment, right? And then, wow. Now, they may have been great leaders all the time, right? For people at more senior levels, that may have been more visible to them. But it was just so notable that when they came, you know, to be present, they were, they, they did just an amazing job with it. And, it, it, you know, I was young. So, I mean, you know, uh, you, you were in the military and having somebody die is a very unusual thing to experience early in your life in, in a work situation, right? So it had a really profound impact on me. Wow. Yeah, re- really interesting. And just one final question on that topic as well, sort of based on that experience and all of your experience since, how important do you think being visible is in, in terms of leadership? Because many years ago, you'd hear people talking about sort of leadership or management by by walking around and and being sort of present and that's interesting in the world we find ourselves in now right where we're working kind of more hybrid across many different kind of office lo- locations like what's your view on how important that that really is well I, th- I think it's absolutely critical but it's also for the reasons you just identified become more challenging too i think ben right so I do a lot of work with organizations going through transformations of varying forms, right? And I think that communication and clarity of communication during transformation is absolutely indispensable if you're going to avoid all kinds of unnecessary disruption, resistance to the the changes, even when they're absolutely necessary. So communication, clarity of communication, compassion in communication, fair process, right? Articulating a fair process for taking people through mm. this change. And I mean, to some degree, it's kind of like, you know, change management 101. But even so, it's not necessarily practiced all that well, you know, in many organizations that I've been involved with. And, and part of the value I think we've brought or I've brought to that is to help them with that, that, that clarity, that compassion, and especially the power of fair process and working things through, right? I mean, if you're going through a restructuring and doing a reduction of some form, you know, uh, you're tearing apart relationships, you're tearing apart teams. Yeah. It's as hard on the survivors as it is on the people that are, are leaving. But if you're not, if the process isn't perceived as being transparent and fair and connecting to the previous experience, if the leadership isn't able to demonstrate some authentic compassion in the process, it hurts everybody in the end. Yeah. So at the expense of asking two obvious questions, I'm, I'm going to do exactly that because I think this is what we're talking about here is one of those topics that we talk about so much, but still we see so many examples of where it doesn't quite land or people don't in- communicate as they they intended. So 
One on clarity of communication and, and one on compassion. What gets in the way of clear communication? Are, are there any bear traps that leadership teams and organizations typically typically fall into? Because we all know we should communicate clearly, right? And at the same time, whether it's an organ- organizational transformation or not, I think every single employee engagement survey probably comes back with quite strong feedback around lack of communication, the leadership team, whoever they are, don't communicate enough and clearly enough. So we know it, but where, where and why does it go wrong? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a few things that that are really important here, Ben. And one is, you know, sometimes leadership thinks they, if they communicate once, then people should have gotten the message, right? You know, when you work with senior leadership teams doing transformations, they've often been thinking about it and working on it for six months before they announce it. And then they expect everyone else to kind of get up to speed in six minutes, you know, and it just doesn't work that way. Right? It's like the analogy I use is two flywheels spinning at very different speeds and they kind of crash together and the sparks kind of fly, right? So I think that repetition of communication, that making sure that leadership is not the only one communicating, but other leaders in the organization are also communicating. You know, it's a good rule of thumb to keep on communicating until you hear the messages coming back to you. And then, you know, you've actually had an impact. So I think that that intensity of communication, I think, is part of it. Yeah, nice. I, I think, you know, and it's Simon Sinek's classic, start with why. Communicating the what, the how, the when is all great. But if people don't get the why, they're not going to kind of connect to the story, to the narrative of what you're trying to do. And I think that I see... I see still lots of organizations that aren't particularly good at communicating the why, right? They go straight to, here's what we're going to do, and here's how we're going to do it, and here's when it's going to happen, and here's who is responsible, and blah, 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 right? You go on. And I think that the story is important, right? What's the story of which we are a part, right, that we're engaged with here? And then I guess, you know, the third thing I would point to, and again, it goes back to that compassion, right? Are you demonstrating any understanding, empathy for what people are going through without being, you know, condescending, without being, you know, I need to do this because, you know, it's expected. But so it's got to be done deftly. It's got to be done judiciously, right? But one hopes that the leadership team isn't communicating that they're getting joy out of this process, right? I mean, that's not a good thing in general. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting that the first point you made there around when you start communicating it, you or the rest of your peers in, in your leadership team have probably been thinking about it for for a long time. You're the only person actually I've ever heard also talk about that. And this is really hard to to describe for those folks listening on an audio only podcast. But when I'm working with leadership teams, I'll often draw a, a timeline on a piece of paper or a flip chart. And at the, at the left-hand edge of it, you've got the moment at which the leader maybe starts thinking about an idea. Then some time passes and they might bring in their closest advisors. Some more times passes, they bring in the wider leadership team. Some more time passes, they bring in the senior leadership team. More time passes, they bring in the rest of the organization. Two weeks passes and they go, why don't people get it? We've been speaking about this for months, but they forget, right, that there's a massive time lag, isn't there, between the leadership team and the rest of the organizations. So I think you're spot on. It's a great technique, right, because it, it's it's a wonderful illustration, right, For and I'm sure that it has an impact on the teams you work with, Ben, because, you, you know, you kind of, you've now got this six-foot-long time frame of, or timeline <laughs> yeah. of which the final two inches are 
you know, communicate to the organization and why aren't they getting it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's like, it, absolutely. It's fabulous. Yeah. Around the compassion and empathy piece, are there any particular like tools or tactics that you help organizations to, to use to help them not lose, lose sight of that? I mean, one thing that comes to mind is sort of a spirit of shared sacrifice. You know, it, it's super hard for people to accept that, you know, all these cost reduction is going on and all these jobs are being eliminated when senior leadership doesn't seem to be making any sacrifices, you know, at the same time, right? Their pay packages go up, their bonuses increase, you know, and, and I think that when I've seen this done well, especially when it's in a more crisis-oriented situation, you know, the, the leadership team takes a hit too, right? I mean, this is many years ago now, but I was doing some work with FedEx before the uh, 2008 crisis, which was a while back, and there was a big hit to the business, right? But the first thing that Fred Smith announced was reductions in senior executive pay, right? And you sort of send a signal and there's a real symbolism and it doesn't, you know, I think it was 10% or something like that. It was, but so it was symbolic as much as anything, but it really communicated that the senior leadership team felt like they were engaged with and, you know, uh, sharing in the sacrifices that were necessary to have the organization come out the other side of that thriving. Yeah. And so I guess that's one big trap is if the leadership team can voice compassion, but if through their actions, they're demonstrating no compassion, people see that difference, right? You know, and, and I think that people understand when things are authentic and when they're not. Yeah. And I think I imagine that must, with that FedEx example, that must have been really powerful, the fact that that was one of the first things the leadership team did, whereas perhaps if some other organizations do that and it's the case of, well, we've lost a load of headcount, we let a load of other people go and now we're still struggling. So almost go on then, we'll sacrifice a little bit of our pay as well. It's a very different message, isn't it? Whereas it, the FedEx example said the first thing that's going to happen is we're taking a, a hit. That's quite powerful. It, it really was. And I think, you know, I, I'm a huge admirer of Fred Smith and what he accomplished with FedEx. And, you know, another thing that happened then was they were already focused on coming out the other side in great shape, right? They had explicit conversations about we need to preserve our culture through this, right? We need to lay the foundations for the time we know will come when things are better and we, we want to accelerate out the other side. So they were, they had that kind of foresight then to imagine the other side of this and, and how current actions would impact that process. And so when they came out the other side, they, they did very well. Mm. Yeah, that's really powerful, isn't it? Back to your point earlier around sort of, in some ways, it's uh, not that great a word to use, I guess, in terms of change, but the piece around the word we commonly use is survivors, but thinking about morale, motivation, engagement, post transition at the start is really powerful isn't it because then you can think well how are our actions now going to impact as we emerge from the other side of this that's that's really powerful isn't it to think about the almost the the landing point the other side absolutely right and you know as you know i'm interested these days in strategic thinking right and one of the most important pieces of strategic thinking is looking forward and reasoning backward right to you know looking forward to where you want to be and then working backward from there, you know, backward mapping, I think it's sometimes called, how do we begin to, to kind of take ourselves down a path towards that future? And I sort of saw that in action 
you know, in that particular in that particular situation. And that's a great little segue you gave us there, Michael, because I wanted to ask you some very specific questions around strategic thinking. But before I do that, maybe to set up this part of the conversation, can you just give us a, a few minutes and give us the overview of kind of your latest book and, and why you wrote it, perhaps? So maybe start with the why uh, of writing it and then kind of, you know, go, in, go into what it is exactly, you know. So I do a lot of work with leaders taking new roles at senior levels, right? So I, I coach C-level executives, you know, transitioning into new roles. My favorite people to work with are first-time CEOs because it's just such a big, a big leap. I wrote the book, The First 90 Days, about, you know, that process. So obviously it's, a, it's near and dear to my heart. And that's, so that's one piece. The other piece is just what we're going through right now in terms of the extraordinary turbulence in the business environment, right? If you think about all the technological, economic, social, political things that are going on, the crisis after crisis kind of environment, you know, I'm seeing leaders really struggle with that, right? How do we orient our organizations to thrive, ideally, and survive at a minimum through through what are, I think are really extraordinary times. And by the way, I'd love to tell you, I think things are going to get better and easier, but I don't believe that, right? I think things are probably going to get even more challenging, right? So you're seeing these leaders taking their roles, but you're also watching them, I'm watching them, you know, grapple with this complexity, uncertainty, volatility, you know, whatever your favorite um, dimensions of difficulty happen to be, right? And some just kind of being extraordinarily good at it. Right. I mean, I, in the book, I use the example of a CEO I've worked with for, I think, eight years at this point, who sort of took his organization through this extraordinary journey, driven mostly by his vision, but also his ability to really execute against that vision in a pretty extraordinary kind of way. Right. And then you see other folks where there's really a struggle. You know, I mean, they're, they're not terrible strategic thinkers, but they're not great strategic thinkers. Right. And so, that got me interested in the topic of strategic thinking. And then I started looking, okay, what is there out there about strategic thinking? And the answer is lots about strategy, not so much about thinking. You know, I mean, there's some, don't get me wrong. I was, I'm not the first person to be plowing in this particular field, right? But not, in my view, enough about the thinking part and too little about being precise about what strategic thinking is. And if you're not precise about what it is, then you can't assess it and you can't develop, right? And I should say, maybe we'll get to this eventually, I do think you can develop strategic thinking ability, right? I mean, this all would have been a very interesting academic exercise if the answer had been Ben has it or Ben doesn't. So look for Ben's, right? You know, if that's the conclusion, arguably there's some use to it. But um, so I, that was what sort of motivated me to go down the road, right? And then as you start to look at it and say, well, what is this thing called strategic thinking, which many people, many leaders are told at some point in their careers you need to become a better strategic thinker, right? Now, right now, do it now, you know? And sort of, well, how do I do that exactly? Well, you know, become more strategic, right? Think more strategically, you know? I mean, it becomes this kind of like self-referential loop that, that kind of happens, right? And the other thing you hear, you know, when I went out and did all the interviews with senior HR people, learning and development people, it was often their first reaction was, I know it when I see it, right? which is not hugely valuable because you only see it if you've got people actually in a position that requires strategic thinking. Like, you know, Ben, you're, you're in an operating role, you know, you're, you're doing a great job in the operating role. Do I see you acting strategically? Maybe not, right? Could you be a great strategic thinker? Absolutely, you could, right? So there's, a, so there's kind of a, a set of challenges that, that I think look like that. And that, 
you know, was what fascinated me. Also, I tend to look at things that I think are kind of eternal leadership problems, right? I started my career as a negotiation and diplomacy specialist, yeah, and I wrote it very extensively for many years, more than a decade about negotiation and diplomacy. You know, people have, you know, from the days that, you know, probably before we were even people, there's been negotiating of some form going on, right? It, it's an eternal problem, and you can still say very useful things about it, right, to teach people to be better negotiators. Leadership transitions, right, from the misty depths of time, there have been new leaders passing up the baton. There have been changes, you know, monarchs shifting, you know, the interregnum kind of phenomenon, right? You know, probably until the end of the human race, if and when that occurs, there will be leadership transitions, right? So this is the sort of thing that interests me, right? As opposed to current technology, although AI is pretty incredible, and we can talk about that if you're interested. And I guess I feel like strategic thinking is something in that same vein, right? It's always been important, right? You, you read the Iliad <laughs> and you've got, you know, wise Nestor offering strategic counsel to the generals, right? That ability to think strategically, you know, and I guess, you know, again, you're with your military background, I'm preaching to the converted here almost certainly, right? The origins of the word strategy, right? So, so that's part of what got me going down this road. What you touched on at the start there, I'm sure almost everybody, if not everybody, who finds themselves in any sort of senior leadership or management role will be able to resonate with that, where at some stage in their career, they've been told, or maybe they've said this to someone junior, you just need to think more strategically. And it strikes me that a lot of the time, People don't know what that means if they're on the receiving end of it. And often also the people giving that piece of feedback don't really know what it is. To your point, right? I'll see it when, I'll know it when I see it. So how do you define strategic thinking? If you was in that one-to-one with somebody and then you went, okay, great. Like, what does that, what does that mean, Michael? To I need to think more strategically. So I think there's a few blocks Ben, right? One is why do we need to, to think strategically? And that gets us back to the VUCA kind of challenges that we're facing today, right? Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, right? That's what makes it necessary and valuable, right? Is, is that reality of the environment we're operating in. And then when I started sort of thinking about it, I, I anchored a strategic thinking around the ability, the essential ability of leaders to recognize emerging threats and opportunities, establish the right priorities to focus on and mobilize their organizations to do something about it, right? And so this recognize, prioritize, mobilize cycle, you know, was was kind of at the core of what I was thinking about. Again, I keep coming back to your military background. I, I used to teach senior U.S. military officials for many years, and I got exposed at one point to John Boyd's thinking about the OODA loop and how you how you move faster than your, your, in quotes, competition, your opponent, right? How you get inside their decision-making loop. And, and that was very influential for my thinking, right? And I think that, so, so I kind of organized my framework around a, a version of that, that I think business leaders can get, right? To what extent can you, Ben, you know, seeing this complex, messed up, <laughs> you know, situation, figure out what are the emerging threats and opportunities, right? Where do I need to prioritize myself and my team's time? And then given those priorities, how do I mobilize the organization? And how do I move through that sense and respond loop as rapidly as possible, right? Because there's competitive advantage in doing that. So that was kind of one foundation. And then 
the other piece was, you know, the six disciplines, right? The idea that there are distinct modes of thinking that you need to engage in to do that recognize, prioritize, mobilize, right? And so I started with pattern recognition as a foundation, right? If you can't separate signal from noise, if you can't see what's important in terms of what's happening in the environment in which your business is operating, both challenges and opportunities, you've lost it basically at the start, right? Systems analysis, systems thinking, I was trained as an engineer originally, so that comes very naturally to me. But how do we sort of put a systems view on top of what's going on, right? And that gets us into things like interconnections of elements. It gets us into feedback loops. It gets us into tipping points. There's a whole way of thinking that is really helpful as you're trying to deal with complexity. And really, systems thinking is not exclusively helpful for dealing with complexity, but it really does help with complexity, right, to boil things down. I originally had seven disciplines of strategic thinking, right? And I actually had I, I combined two into mental agility. And the two I combined are what I call level shifting. That CEO I mentioned that I work with calls it cloud to ground thinking, right? It's the ability to go from the high level to the detail and back up again, but do it with intentionality. Figure out what the right altitude to be flying at is, be able to be consciously capable of moving between the high level and the low level. Because you see people who get stuck up in the clouds and you see people who get stuck down in the in the detail, right? And so the great strategic thinkers I've been privileged to observe and in some cases work with, right? They're able to do that cloud to ground level shifting capacity. And then the other thing I bundled into mental agility is more the chess master kind of skill of can you look forward a couple of moves, reason backward to what the right move is now? You know, it's it's action and reaction, but it's thinking forward and ahead in an agile way. That also, of course, connects to pattern recognition, because if you use chess as a metaphor for this, right, not computers, but well, actually increasingly computers see patterns, right? The original machines that played chess just you know, ground out 20 moves out, you know, the new ones actually use machine learning and other, you know, tactics in tandem with that kind of processing to see consequential patterns. So there is a linkage, I think, between that pattern recognition capability and that ability to think forward a few moves and, and reason back. Those three, maybe I'll pause at this point, right, are to me the foundations of what it takes to do the recognizing and prioritizing. And the other three are really more about the mobilizing of the organization. But maybe just pause, see if you've got thoughts about what I've said so far. I love the fact you mentioned the OODA loop and the free part approach of recognition, prioritization, mobilization really sort of makes sense and resonates with me. I wonder if from your experience, you notice any patterns in terms of any areas where leaders fall down or struggle the most? Is it in finding the time to do the scanning and recognition piece? Is it that leaders struggle to prioritize, especially now in the modern world when there is so much noise and arguably so many opportunities that we could go for? Like, is there a, is one of those free domains a, a weaker one generally? So I'm, I'm not sure one of the domains is weaker, but I, but I can point to some real challenges with that. Ben, right? The biggest of which is the CEO being the sole brain of the organization. You know, if you're relying on one person, Ben Morton, CEO, hypothetically, right, to be the one who is doing the recognizing, prioritizing, and mobilizing, the odds that that person is going to get massively overwhelmed by what's happening are very high. 
right? Yeah, it's like a bit like Jim Collins's genius and a thousand helpers, right? From good to great, I think. Uh, yes, and exactly right. And so, to me, it quickly goes into how do you be, build strategic thinking teams because you can't do it all by yourself. It also gets to how do you create an organization that it, that given it's all it's out there among customers and suppliers is capable of sensing and responding to what's going on. Right. I, you know, I, I, I like using biological metaphors for things. Right. And to me, this is the difference, the complementarity between the brain and the immune system. You know, the brain is the central processing unit. You know, we're somewhat consciously taking things in, although there's obviously unconscious processes going on. But in the meantime, this completely invisible immune system is out there, you know, detecting not good things and responding. Right. And so when I used to advise companies on government relations, I kind of used a version of this saying, look, you know, every place you've got an outpost, a factory, uh, an office, that's a place where you can be collecting intelligence about what's going on. But you need to be preparing your people to, to participate in that process of sensing and responding. So I guess that's, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm quite answering your question, right? But I think that, you know, syndicating the responsibility for strategic thinking, creating the systems that are really able to sense what's going on and, and distill out what's going on in a reasonable way, it helps, I think, on the margin. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to ask and kind of share share my experience of, again, in my work, I come across a lot of busy middle managers, maybe senior managers. And when we start talking about strategic thinking or operating on a more strategic level, the response I hear, or sometimes the justification for why they're not, is often along the lines of, Ben, I'd love to, but there's just so much on my plate. There is so much operational stuff to deliver that I just don't have the time. Now, I absolutely get that. I think there is a reality to that. And this might just be my military experience, but I think there's also a discipline that we can have or develop that allows us to to step back. And I do think I was I was very fortunate in that my first job was training to to, to be a leader. So I didn't go through that. I was in the weeds doing the job and gradually got promoted. I kind of started and was trained to be a leader. And I remember really clearly when I was doing my training at the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, and it was the start of the final term. Back then when I was going through training, kind of it was just coming towards the end of the sort of Northern Ireland kind of troubles. But we still ran a big exercise where we simulated operating in, in Northern Ireland. And I was given the command appointment, being the second in command of a company running operations amongst the civilian population. All sorts of things were kicking off on the training exercise. And I was in this little room in our sort of protected compound trying to respond and, and plan. I was literally bunched over like a map table. And the captain, who was my instructor, literally lent, he was a big guy, literally lent over, grabbed me by sort of my, my webbing, my kit around me and pulled me back and he said stop take a step back and it was like both physically and and metaphorically so that's always been in, in my psyche but having the ability to do that both physically and metaphorically i i think is key but it can be hard to do right in a busy organization where there's so much so much going on 100% right and I, but i want to before i answer the the core question you asked also that the power of simulation Hugely powerful, right? I mean, you, you can have as many plans, you know, as you want, but if you haven't exercised against those plans, it doesn't matter, right? 
But anyway, to, to the core of your, your, your question, right? So I have a colleague who describes that middle management layer you just, you just mentioned as the permafrost of the organization. He's referring to, you know, efforts to try and make change happen in the organization and how critical it is to enlist that layer, but how hard it is to enlist that layer. And the reason is the same, right? That they are really, really busy, right? And, they're, and they've got targets and they're delivering and they are, they're the operational core of the organization. And now you're trying to tell them kind of, okay, you know, while you're doing all that, do this too, yeah? So I think that's one piece of it. But, you know, I think that the point you're making here also is, is that about discipline is crucial, right? Which is, it doesn't take that much time to engage in some strategic thinking. It just doesn't, right? I mean, I put together a little 30-minute daily, you know, strategic thinking workout plan, right? And, and it's stuff you kind of distribute across your day, right? You know, you do some puzzles, you, you read the newspaper with a strategic eye, you do, you know, you talk to someone about a strategic issue, you know, and, and you don't have to do it in thir- straight 30 minutes, you can divide it up across the day. Right? So to me, the idea that time is really the issue, I think that's as much an excuse as, as anything, Right. I think what sits underneath it a little bit is, I don't know how to do that. You're asking me to do something. I'm not sure how to do it. And you can't even really explain what you're asking me to do. And also, it's it's not clear how that generates value for me on a day-to-day basis. I mean, if I, if I thought that engaging in that activity would actually generate value for me, yeah, I'd be more. But but as a kind of sidelight, but not really core value generator, I'm not going to. And something that maybe makes me a little nervous because I've never really had to do it to be successful to this point, you're almost certain to get the result you expect to get in a situation like that. Yeah, that's so true, right? Like, what are you going to spend time on pausing to do some strategic thinking or spending that same 20 minutes where you can clear down another 50 emails to get a massive dopamine hit and feel more calm and in, in control? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's tough when you frame it like that, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And I think you're, you're pointing actually to, to another, I think, something else that's super important, which is you know, organizations often select early on, almost in an evolutionary sense, for people who are good operationally and at execution and at problem solving, right? And so you get up to a certain level, you know, maybe it's director in the U.S. system, right? On the strength of being, you know, a good problem solver, a good executor, right? And and people who, you know, maybe are really creative people or really good strategic thinking people, but aren't so wonderful at execution, they kind of get... <laughs> selected out by the system, right? And then you wake up one morning and, and you tell them, hey, you need to be a strategic thinker, but wait a minute. <laughs> you know, that's not what got me here, right? You know, and it's it's the old Marshall Goldsmith, what got you here won't get you there. But if what is going to get you there is so different from what you've done and what you've been rewarded for doing, you're, you're going to face real challenges. And, and that gets us into something and I, you know, I don't want to take us off track with how do you make sure that at least some of your strategic thinkers aren't killed off by the organization? And that's not saying they can't execute or they don't have to perform, but how do you make sure you don't, by virtue of the way you're operating, select out all the people that really could be doing the strategic thinking for you in the future? Yeah. How, how do you do that? <laughs> well, you know, I think you find jobs that maybe can help those people not have to necessarily always be in the operating core. The other thing I, I always, you know, uh, years ago, I wrote a, an article about leadership complementarity, right? And sometimes it's about making sure that if you're in a position that requires a lot of execution and you're not that gifted at execution, you've got someone, you're number two, who is there to help you drive execution, right? Because it's a team sport, right? You know, so I think there are ways to compensate for it. 
I think identifying strategic thinking capability early helps, but there's no easy answer, right? And, and the more operational the organization, the you know, the, the bigger the risk. And the more hierarchical the organization, the bigger the risk is you're going to get people at the mid-tier who have been selected not by virtue of being great strategic thinkers, right? And then, okay, now now what do we do? Michael, there's so much more we could continue exploring on, on this thread, but one thing I really wanted to ask you about was one of the later chapters in, in your new book, which is around being politically savvy. I mean, this is particularly interesting because I know this is certainly the case in, in the UK, but when you talk about being, when we talk about being politically savvy, straight away that can trigger lots of emotions in people because it feels a little bit sort of, I don't know, self-serving, Machiavellian. We might have some really strong negative connotations linked to it because of politics. Like what's, t- tell us a little bit more about that and specifically why you included that in the book? So first of all, it is the one I think that surprised people the most, right? Because you kind of have this view of politics. It's either your emotional intelligence and ability to kind of understand what people want. It's not really viewed as being that strategic in some sense, you know? And again, I came out of a a background originally, you know, decision theory, game theory, negotiation theory, strategic negotiation, alliance building, you know, looking at some big international conflicts, there is absolutely a strategic dimension to building coalitions, to building alliances, right? So that's the origins of kind of my thinking about this. But the point you're making is a great one, right? And I think that I absolutely get people, even relatively senior people saying, I hate politics. And my answer is always get over it you know, um, or be a fatality, you know, because the reality is organizations are political by their nature, right? And by political, I mean, you've got powerful players pursuing agendas. Those agendas are partially about things in the organization, but there's almost always a personal dimension to them of advancement, right, or recognition or whatever. And as you get to more senior levels in organizations, somewhat maybe paradoxically, right, things become more political, right? Why do they become more political? You've got strong, you know, ambitious people contending for influence. You've got problems that don't have answers that are reasonably, you know, attained through, you know, analysis, right? So opinion, right, judgment, support become more and more important. And then you're dealing with external environments that are highly political, right? You're dealing with governments, you're dealing with other key stakeholders in the environment. So, if as a senior leader, you're not politically savvy, what does that mean? It means you're not able to build the alliances you need to build to get things done inside your organization. And it means you're not able to shape the external environment in support of your organization and strategy, right? So where people get hung up on this is the self-serving part of it, you know, and it it's there, right? For sure it's there. But there's also a really critical part that is about building alliances to get important things done. Right. And so if you want, if, if, if you kind of want a positive frame on what you're doing, that's what you're doing. You're building alliances to get important things done. Oh, by the way, because you have to, right? Because you're not going to get things done if you don't build those alliances. And, you know, as I sort of said earlier, you know, political savvy is one of the three chapters in the book that's about mobilizing your organization, right? The other is doing structured problem solving in teams. Uh, and the third is visioning, but also enlisting people in the vision. But that political savvy piece, you know, especially in large and complex organizations where leaders don't have the authority to mandate 
what's going to get done. It's it's absolutely essential. So I think about the people sitting listening to this at home or on their their commute to work and how they can actually go and do something different as a result of of what what we're talking about. It just in, in my mind at the minute, I've sort of split it into two sections. There's the the mindset piece, which is just get over that. It's it's part of business. Get over it. You've got to do it. So that's the mindset piece. Then if we look at maybe behaviors, are there any particular behaviors you've observed, practices that those that are very politically savvy use that other people could take away and practice themselves in in their organization? My best example then is not to confuse alliances and relationships. Okay. Not to think that relationships and alliances are the same thing. Right. Mm. And that really flows from, you know, an understanding of the agendas that people have in the organization. What has Ben Morton trying to accomplish? How is what I'm doing align or not with what Ben is trying to accomplish? Do I have resources that can help Ben accomplish, you know, what he's trying to accomplish? I may not like Ben, particularly. I do. <laughs> but, but, I may, but, but I may not, right? You know, and, or I, and I may be in disagreement with Ben on many other issues, right? But on this particular one, we can be allies. And it doesn't require a relationship. It requires an alignment and a commitment and a reliability that we're going to kind of pursue something explicitly or implicitly through, through cooperation, right? And likewise, I could have a wonderful relationship with Ben, but around a certain issue, we're not in agreement about what needs to happen, right? Because your agenda, your mandate, the way you're measured and incentivized doesn't line up with what I want to do. Now, it's not that you don't like me anymore, right? And it's not that you're going to be nasty to me, but you're not going to support what I'm trying to do, right? And so that, I guess that's the single one I, I tend to point to. And then there's lots of tactical stuff around political savvy, right? Example, you know, uh, the meetings before the meetings and the meetings after the meetings, the sequencing of how you, you know, work through networks of influence to build momentum behind what you're doing. There's lots of more fine-grained tactical stuff that I think is pretty, pretty helpful. Yeah, and I just sort of had a yeah, bit of a, a moment of insight. And in some ways, I think it's bringing us full circle. And I'm just really starting to see how everything you're talking about in the book are all links together, right? So... In order to get things done as senior leaders, we need to be politically savvy. Part of that is understanding the alliances and relationships that, that we need. But at the same time, we can be very strategic about which relationships we are investing in, which ones we are building, rather than when we're really busy trying to develop incredible alliances and relationships everywhere. Well, no, what am I trying to deliver? Who are the key people that affect that? And let's be strategic in in my approach, right? Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better than you just did, right? It's that being focused on what am I trying to get done? Whose support is essential? What do they care about? How do I enlist them? And then there's this sort of momentum piece, right? Of how do I start to get the ball rolling in the directions that I want it to roll? How do I help it create momentum? You know, that's all part of the, the art and the science, I think, of, of political savvy. Michael, maybe one more question before I get to my standard closing question. What's strategic listening? Ah, that's a great one. And I'm going to slightly enlarge 
the question, if that's okay, which is absolutely is about how do you communicate like a strategic thinker? Even if you're not in a role that requires strategic thinking, you can still engage in dialogue in a way that communicates that you are a strategic thinker, elevate the perspective on something, right? Ask the right question about a particular issue, suggest we think about other factors as we're making this, right? There's ways you can do that. And actually a colleague of mine and I had a Harvard Business Review article recently, a digital article on how to communicate like a strategic thinker. So I'd frame your question kind of in the broader context of how do you communicate like a strategic thinker? And then strategic listening, you know, I think is is strategic in a couple of senses, right? It's strategic as in if you're asking the right question that focuses attention in the right ways, that opens up an issue, that's pretty powerful. That's one way listening can be strategic. The other is to create the connection with you, right, emotionally, and show that I, I understand what you care about. Yeah, I mean, th- there's there's an element of strategic strategy in that too, in understanding that active listening is a form of persuasion, right, and not just a passive, you know, acquisition of information. So it's a it's a great it's a great and very rich question. Brilliant, and I'll we'll link to the article that you wrote with Brenda Steinberg in, in the show notes. People can, can go and check that out as well, because I, I really enjoyed reading it. It was really, really insightful. So yeah, thank, thank you for writing that. Michael, I'd love to ask you the final question that I ask every guest, which is flipping a, a traditional question, I guess. So what would you say is the best mistake that you've ever made? Sort of that thing that initially seems to be terrible, but actually turned out to be very fortuitous for whatever reason. The writing of the first 90 days is probably my best example, right? Oh, wow. Yeah, because I was a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard and then at the Harvard Business School, and I was on the tenure track, right? So I was, you know, uh, aspiring to get tenure at Harvard, which is a wonderful thing if you can get it, right? Just before I moved from the Kennedy School to the business school, I got interested in leadership transitions through a colleague and friend and wrote a book called Right from the Start, right? Which was before the first 90 days and about very senior leadership transitions. And I took a whole lot of flack for doing it, right? Because I was supposed to be a negotiation guy, a senior person at HBS, a tenure professor, described the writing of the book in public as an aberrant act on my part. You know, I got a fair amount of feedback that I should not be going down the road of doing this and that it would probably lead to me not getting tenure. And, you know, I, at some point, I just I just made a decision that this, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was going to get tenure anyway. So given sort of the, the trajectory of things, and so I decided to push on with writing the book. And so I had this crazy experience, you know, circa spring of 2004 of simultaneously not getting tenure but also having the first 90 days go on the Business Week bestseller list as it was then and stay on for like 18 weeks or something crazy, right? So it wasn't quite a mistake, I guess, but it was a moment where I made, a, I think, a conscious decision to kind of give up on something in pursuit of something that I was really interested in and maybe in the knowledge that I wasn't going to get that other thing anyway. It's amazing. And I think if, if you are going to vaguely think of it as a mistake, like what what a great one it was, judging by... Uh, how dogged my copy of the first 90 days is because I've flicked through it so many times and just how successful I know know that book has been. Like I think I said to you when we planned this episode, we had it on the essential reading list when I worked in the Leadership Academy at, at Tesco because it is the guide for leadership transitions. So yeah, incredible <laughs> mistake. Thanks. Michael, thank you so much for, for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure 
talking to you, especially as I've spent many years flicking through your your previous books. So yeah, it's been a real honor and delight chatting to you and it's been really fascinating exploring the world of sort of strategic thinking. And I'm looking forward to picking up and properly delving into, into your new book. If people want to find out more or maybe connect with you, what's the best way to do that, please? First of all, it's just a delight to have the conversation, man. I really, I really enjoyed it. And yeah, LinkedIn's the best place to reach me. You know, I monitor my own LinkedIn, so you're not going to get either, a, you know, AI or a, a non-Michael human being answering, right? It's probably the easiest way to, to connect with me. Brilliant. Thank you once again, Michael. It's been a fabulous conversation. Thanks, Ben. Take care. Before you go, let me just say thank you for joining Michael and myself for this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast. If this episode has resonated with you, if you've taken value from it, if you've learned something new, or if you've left with a commitment to do something different as a result of what you've heard, then please share it with your friends and colleagues so that they can have the same opportunity to grow and develop. And before you go, do also check out the Leaders Kit Bag episodes. It's the weekly micro edition of my podcast. Each Leaders Kit Bag episode is just five or six minutes long and focuses on one very practical leadership tip or tactic. So far, we've covered planning and prioritization, how to keep your teams motivated, and we're just getting into the ever important topic of resilience. And again, once you've listened to those, please share them with your friends and colleagues so that together we can improve the leadership capability in our companies, charities, and institutions. After all, I'm sure you'll agree with me when I say the world needs great leaders now more than ever. Until next time, look after yourself, look after those you've got the privilege and responsibility to lead, and as always, lead on. Mm -hmm.